0: While Rio and New Orleans are world-famous for Mardi Gras and carnival festivals, the days leading up to Ash Wednesday have party traditions in Europe that go back centuries. What the Catholic Church allows you here is to see what anarchy and chaos in hell will be like before you become a good person again through your fasting. Coming up, we'll hear how they celebrate Carnival in Germany's Rhineland and how Carnival can turn the social order upside down in the
1: Balkans. The low can rise to become the high, The powerless can criticize the powerful, and everybody celebrates together. Everybody, when you're all drunk, everyone's equal.
0: The bustling streets of Istanbul can feel like a party almost any time of year. The street food's a big hit, and I'd recommend the stuffed mussels.
2: We don't use utensils. What we do is that we break the mussel into two and use half of the, one of the shelves as a spoon to scoop it out.
0: Plus, we'll check in with listeners with more thoughts on traveling to the Holy Land. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Are you ready to do some traveling? Coming up in a moment, we'll get you ready to explore the lively streets of Istanbul, where I can vouch for the quality of the city's street food scene. We'll also get a taste of carnival celebrations in Germany and the Balkans and explore the scene in the Holy Land with fellow travelers at 877-333-7425 of all the great cities in Europe, Istanbul ranks right up there with London, Paris, and Rome as a city well worth spending an entire week of your vacation. And Istanbul is by far the cheapest of these great cities and with the most entertaining cuisine for those who are on a tight budget or those with an adventurous palate. But for tourists, it can actually be expensive if you just go to the tourist traps. For some tips today on eating our way cheaply and memorably through Istanbul, we're joined by a friend and fellow tour guide, Lolly Sermon-Aran, who comes to us from Istanbul and joins us in our studio today. Lolly, thanks for joining us.
2: You're welcome. Merhaba.
0: Merhaba. As a traveler in Turkey for their first time, what should we be sure to sample?
2: There are many things. First of all, the most common street food is called simit. It's a sesame bagel uh-huh. cooked in an oven. It's plain bread dipped in grape molasses, and dipped in sesame, You will see it sold everywhere.
0: In like wheelbarrow carts going yes, down the streets. It yes. just cost a few pennies, and you yes. get, it's fresh.
2: And sometimes in the carts, they may also sell cheese and olive paste along with it, because those are the things we like to eat with the simmets. Oh,
0: so like we could put cream cheese on a bagel, and in Turkey, you'd put olive paste on a simit.
2: Uh-huh, and cream cheese as well. Okay. And of course, a cup of tea with it, served in a tulip glass.
0: Okay, this is the classic way to eat your tea. What is the Turkish word for tea? Chai. Chai. So you sit down in a tea house, have a glass of chai, and you've got your simit. That's a beautiful little snack. One of my favorite days in Istanbul, when I'm with you, as a matter of fact, is walking down Isk- how do you spell?
2: istiklal. Yes, istiklal Caddesi.
0: That's the main sort of uh, commercial boulevard through the center of Istanbul, and this street is. Thriving, from midday all the way until the wee hours of the night. There's tram tracks, and sometimes it's so crowded the tram can't even go down the street. That's true. Now, the fun thing when you go down the street is to eat your way. What are some of the things we can eat as we walk down this street?
2: If I'm on a regular day walking Istiklal Street, maybe for some shopping, I would usually prefer a cafeteria-style restaurant. Mm-hmm. There are many of them lined through the street. They usually cook fresh food daily around 10 and 11 a.m., so it's a guarantee that the food is fresh. They usually don't have a printed menu because they buy whatever is freshly available in the market and cook it.
0: And for the tourist who speaks as much Turkish as I do, there's no problem because you look at what's cooking, it's right there in, exactly. in the big in the big pots.
2: And you just point what you want and you pay at the register. That's how it goes and find yourself a table and enjoy it.
0: And it's fast, it's filled with locals, it's always fresh because it's cooked right there. And it's there, inexpensive. And it's very inexpensive. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're spicing up our world today with a tasty trip through Istanbul. Our phone number is 877-333-7425 and Don is on the line from Spring in Texas. Don, thanks for your call.
3: Thank you. We're going to be taking a cruise and unfortunately I feel like I probably won't have a lot of time to eat. If I wanted to eat from a food cart off the uh, corner of a street, is that fairly uh, uh, good food, and what would be a recommendation for that type of uh,
0: meal? Well, first of all, Don, before we get into the food, I was just in Istanbul with a cruise ship, and most cruise itineraries give you two days and one night in Istanbul. That's double the time of most of the stops on your itinerary, and thankfully, the cruise ships dock right at the base of the the center of the town, and you can hop in a taxi or just hike up to the top of the hill that we were just talking about for Istiklal Street, and you'll be in this teeming world of Turkish culture. And the exciting thing for me was half an hour after I was on the cruise ship having breakfast on the top deck, I was immersed in all of this fun in Istanbul without a single hint of the cruise culture. And if you are your first time in Turkey and you want the maximum experience, you might even skip your breakfast on the cruise ship and jump off first thing and dive into the city and enjoy all these taste treats. So, uh, Lolly, for Don, what would be some good advice for more street food off of the cruise ship?
2: Well, obviously, Don would want to see the major highlights of the city. So, as you suggest, he can start the day with a breakfast on Istiklal Street, and that would be a very nice start to the day because it will reveal the modern part of Istanbul. Then once you're done with... What might
0: the breakfast be, by the way?
2: Our typical breakfast includes cheese, one or two types of cheese or more, olives, cured black olives or green olives, uh, varieties of jam, honey, butter, egg, and bread, which would be like the French bread, that are all served with tea, but not coffee.
0: Not coffee, tea. Not and, coffee. and Don's going to go to the sites. Where might he enjoy eating with speed? Because he has a lot to see, but he wants to have a nice uh, sampling of street food.
2: Don, through the center of the old town, runs a tram track, and this street with the tram track is called Divanyolu, and it's dotted with restaurants, cafeteria-style restaurants, such as they are on the Istiklal Street. One of the most popular ones is called the Pudding Shop, and you can always count on a good food and a good variety in the Pudding Shop. But, of course, it's not the one and only. It's the best known, and there are several others.
3: Thank you. Uh, When you said pudding... Does
4: it have sweets
3: there
2: or is it just a yes, they also have. a started as a sweet shop back in 60s. It was a a hippie gathering place to travel to further east.
0: Speaking of hippies, I gathered there back in the early <laughs> 70s, a little bit after the heyday of the hippies. But this was the springboard for that hippie bus ride to Kathmandu, and of uh, pudding shop had all of the. It had the message boards, and it had the and the sweets and, and the uh, first-world hippies would hang out there before teaming up to go across Asia. And to this day, it's got a fun ambiance. It's quite touristy, but it's a beautiful place. As Lolly has mentioned, it's one of those cafeteria-style places where you can just grab what looks good. And my favorite pudding there, I don't know if you'd formally call it a pudding, but it's the rice, yeah, rice pudding. What's the word for rice pudding in Turkish? Sütlac. Sütlac. That's worth writing down. S-U-T-L-A-C with a hook under it, sütlac. And, man, oh, man, that, is, that brings rice pudding to new, new heights, Don. Oh, that sounds
4: excellent. I'll try
0: that. that have fun. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Lali Sermon-Aran is the head of SRM Tours, which specializes in guided tours of Turkey. And she's our guide to the tasty street food of Istanbul right now on Travel with Rick Steves. There's a couple of experiences I think people should have when they're walking mm-hmm. through Istanbul. They'll find kokoreç and they'll find uh, stuffed mussels. Can you talk about this?
2: Stuffed mussels, you can find them in street carts or in small kiosk restaurants. It's basically the black big mussel stuffed with rice and herbs. And we eat it by dropping a few drops of lemon on it. We don't use utensils. What we do is that we break the mussel into two and use half of the one of the shelves as a spoon to scoop it out and eat the mussel.
0: And that's quite a popular taste Very treat. popular. I think your husband is crazy about these fried well, mussels.
2: Well, we most of all, <laughs> we, most of us are crazy about the stuffed mussels. And we then, also uh, have fried mussels, as you said, yeah. which we like, and we eat with a tartar sauce and a bread.
0: Oh, okay, and the kokoretsch.
2: Kokoretsch, you are familiar to it, but you, you're not aware you're familiar to it. It's the sheep intestines that are grilled, barbecued, which are chopped into tiny pieces with vegetables and herbs, and put in a bread sandwich. It's a sausage, but sausage of our style, I would say. Kokoreç.
0: One of my favorite memories is getting a fresh fish sandwich r- literally right off the boat from the fisherman.
2: On the golden horn. That's right. That we call the fishwich sandwiches. Along the golden horn, around the Galata Bridge, there are a number of both seafood restaurants, simple down to earth, or boats bouncing in the water. They grill the fish right away. It's very basic. They grill the fish, they cut a bread into half, put the fish in the bread and hand to you. And there will be small stools and tables to sit around and eat your fresh fish sandwich.
0: It's fast food, Istanbul-style, surrounded by a lot of young families having just a nice day out. Yes.
2: The beverage with the fish, which is the beet juice. Beet juice? Yes. Pickled beet juice.
0: And Suzanne's calling in from Alba in Texas. Hi, Suzanne.
4: Hi, how are you, Rick?
0: Doing great. Do you have a comment for Lolly about eating in Istanbul?
4: I do. We had such a fabulous time in your country, Lolly. Um, Thank you. We spent 10 days, and every day that we were there, we ate baklava for dessert. We found ourselves fascinated with the baklava shops in Istanbul. Um, They were just beautiful to look at and fabulous to eat in. Could you talk to us a little bit about where you find the best baklava and what your favorite flavor is?
0: First of all, Suzanne, you said you were fascinated by the baklava shops. What was fascinating about I, them?
4: They displayed their wares in trays in the windows. So first of all, it was almost as beautiful as the spice market because each kind of baklava, whether it was chocolate or pistachio or almond or just plain honey, was cut in a different pattern and was displayed in the window sort of like tiers of, pastries would be in France or wedding cakes here in the United States. So it was beautifully displayed. And I was fascinated that there were so many different kinds of baklava. Typically in an American restaurant, you have a choice of baklava and they serve it in its one flavor. But in Istanbul, I discovered that there were tons of different kinds and everybody felt they had a of a specialty baklava that had been in their family's recipe repertoire for years and years. So it was fun to go and sample.
0: I've got a big baklava smile on my face right now because (laughs) I I responded the same way. So many varieties so beautifully displayed and beautifully lit also. Lolly, talk about uh, how we can enjoy the best baklava.
2: Of course, it's a matter of personal choice because, as she says, we have a great variety of baklava kinds which come with different kinds of nuts and cream and butter. The amount they are cooked and the amount of syrup they are immersed into make the taste different. But personally, what I like is pistachio baklava, which is served with a scoop of goat milk ice cream on top.
0: Mm, and you can find that at... Wow. <laughs> oh, I, no
2: calories, right?
0: <laughs> right, no calories. You, actually, you got to walk so much in Istanbul that I think it's a, it's a beautiful wash. Suzanne, I love your idea of capping every day with uh, baklava, not necessarily from your restaurant, but going down the street to a baklava shop and having all that variety and having fun with the locals, celebrating my favorite Turkish dessert. Suzanne, thanks for your call.
4: You're welcome. Bye-bye. Thank I you. Know. Bye-bye.
0: Lali Manaran, thanks so much for giving us a tasty treat You're welcome. in your beautiful city, Istanbul. Teşekkür ederim.
2: Rica ederim.
0: We'll check in with listeners who have travel impressions from the Holy Land in just a bit at eight seven seven three 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 seven four two five. 877-333-7425. Carnival celebrations come with centuries of tradition behind them in Central Europe. It's where Christian imagery often mixes with symbols from older pagan festivals that mark the end of winter. We'll find out how revelers celebrate the days before Lent in the Rhineland and in the Balkans. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone believes that knowing even just a little bit of a new language can help take down barriers so your trip can be truly memorable. Helping people learn language for more than 20 years, it's now available on smartphones and tablets. Learn more at rosettastone.com ricksteves. One of the sure signs that spring's not far off are the parties and parades that mark Carnival or Mardi Gras in different parts of the world. Even if you don't plan to deny yourself with fasting during Lent, the parties that you might find where you live originate in centuries-old traditions for letting off steam and indulging before the 40 days leading up to Easter. The names and details will vary from place to place. But the origins of Carnival in the heart of Europe guarantees that you'll find a lively scene brewing in places like the Rhineland of Western Germany. For a look inside the carnival traditions of the Rhineland, we're joined by German historian Fabian Reuger. Fabian, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tell me, just to get me straight on this, we have Easter and we have Lent, which is a time of fasting and so on, leading up to Easter, and then there's Mardi Gras that we all know about from New Orleans and so on, Mm -hmm. and carnival. Give me a whole thumbnail uh, context. What is all this stuff? So, it
5: all has Christian origins. Um, some say it's even older, but what we know for facts is, in six hundred AD, Pope Gregory decrees that there's forty days of fasting before Easter. And when you start the fasting period, you have to get rid of all the food that might perish in the following forty days. Uh-huh. So you need Clean to eat that food. Around the same time, there is some sort of taxation as well, where the you know the landlords or the feudal lords get payment in food from their farmers so the whole thing turns into some sort of um, party the night before the fasting period begins and that is the birth moment of carnival which as a word probably derives from carnivale which means farewell to meat because that's when the
0: fasting period begins so let me get this straight we've got Easter and in order to prepare for the very important holy festival of Easter we have to have a period of 40 days of fasting and and not being hedonistic so that is carnival that is Carnival. That's the origin. So of basically, carnival. Uh, carnival culminates in some big feast
5: 40 days before Easter? 40 days before Easter. Well, of course, what happens is that, and that's what happened with customs in history, what is supposed to be just one day mm-hmm. very quickly turns into a whole week of partying because it begins to mix with other customs that already existed. And so very quickly, you have a whole season before fasting in which the Catholic Church agrees, should be sort of a simulation of hell because the fasting period is your cleansing period, so you switch back to heaven. In other words, what the Catholic Church allows you here is to see what anarchy and chaos
0: and hell will be like before you become a good person again through your fasting. Now, this must have served almost a purpose in the Middle Ages as a safety valve, a way for people to vent, people to put a a mask on their face, and anything goes. Indeed.
5: And that's, of course, if you will, simulated anarchy so that real anarchy will not happen.
0: We know Carnival in Venice. It's famous because they have those beautiful masks. And, of course, that was when people could hook up with people of different social classes and economic classes and all sorts of stuff could go on because, hey, I'm wearing a mask and this is before Lent. What is it like in Germany? Why is it a big deal in Germany? One thing that makes Carnival very interesting,
5: I think, in Germany is, um, first of all, there is still the the vision of faith, because in the Protestant regions in Germany, let's face it, I can say this as a Protestant, carnival in Protestant regions is boring or non-existent, <laughs> because only the Catholics know how to do it.
0: Germany is split in the middle, basically. The South, Bavaria, and so on would be more yes, Catholic. The, the, the Catholic regions
5: west of the Rhine and in the South, they would have the, the proper carnival. And of course, that's because they have these historic traditions. Now, with the abolition of fasting by Protestantism, there is no reason anymore for carnival therefore the Protestant regions by their very definition don't really need carnival. And that's why these traditions were weakened over the centuries in the Protestant regions.
0: You mentioned it becomes a season not just a party before Lent but actually a season. Uh, How does that relate to Fat Tuesday or Mardi Gras? One of the links to Fat
5: Tuesday Mardi Gras is that depending on the calendar it begins earlier in some places and later in others. So what is Mardi Gras? The Tuesday in the Cologne region for instance um, usually Carnival begins on Thursday so it's actually um, sort of a Fat Thursday, Fat Thursday, Thursday. There. But the main week is the one that begins on the Rosenmontag, and everything ends
0: on Ash Wednesday, of course, because that's when the fasting period begins. And this this Ash Wednesday and Rosy Monday and Fat whatever Thursdays, this is all in the week before Lent.
5: That's right. The Lent begins basically with Ash Wednesday. Okay, so
0: roughly 47 to 40 days before Easter, you've got this week-long period in Germany Mm -hmm. that is Carnival. And is Cologne the greatest place for Carnival, or what cities are great? It has the largest and, I think, the most historic
5: Carnival in Germany. Now, keep in mind that Napoleon, as he invades Germany in the 19th century, bans Carnival, That's interesting because France, of course, is a Catholic country, but Napoleon does not like the idea that there are masked people dancing around in the streets, especially since the carnival parades make a lot of fun of the French troops. Oh, my goodness. Which is why by the 1820s, (laughs) carnival has been banned for about eight years... Carnival gets this rebirth by the Prussians, who are Protestant. They now own the city of Cologne, but they want to revitalize the spirit of Carnival and therefore gain some sort of uh, allegiance to Prussia and the local population. I see You can
0: win the heart and soul of the populace by giving them giving subsidized them bread or excuse to party. The excuse to party to give them the Carnival back. Now, now if, I, if I'm going to Cologne, let's say, for Carnival, right, yeah. as a tourist, as a, as an American who doesn't really have connections there and friends there, how can I enjoy it and what will I see? Well, you should arrive, obviously, just, you know, the weekend
5: just before. And then, especially on Rose Monday, the Rosenmontag, there are the main parades on the streets of Cologne. Our cars are being hauled around. Usually they have huge political cartoons or caricatures of figures. And there are the fools in Carnival. You always elect the Prince of Fools and the parades they'll throw sweets to the children in the streets and so i grew up as a child always going to these rose monday parades so every little Monday village is the parade and, and Mon- the... rose monday is the main and main it, parade day and what else will happen later um, on in the week of course there's lots of partying going on as a child of course you're not allowed to go to parties that go into the after hours but you know as soon as you can you will Okay, it's a good you're a full-grown tradition. adult and
0: you can party hardy. What are you going to wear? What would you do if you were going to Carnival this year to have a time that you'll never forget? Rule number one is you cannot go without
5: a costume of sorts. You have to dress up. It doesn't matter as what, almost, but you have to somehow be dressed up and be visibly a fool of sorts. Now, of course, you can't dress up as Batman. That's foolish enough you know, or a Superman. Um, I remember a couple of friends of mine went as the uh, the American band Kiss, all in makeup and everything, and they were one of the most admired, costumed guys in the streets, and everybody loved it. Carnival is, it's fairly crazy, because if you get into the city of Cologne, if you can get in on that day, uh, it will be absolutely packed. Everybody will be in costume. Even the odd policeman patrolling the streets mm. will have something something on that basically tries to make it look like a costume even though he's still wearing a uniform. <laughs> so and even when in, he's on service, service, on duty, they will the try will to do up. something to show they're also oh, part of Carnival. Great. Uh, and, uh, of course, legally speaking even, formally, the Prince of Fools is the mayor of Cologne in this Carnival period. And, of course, it all ends on Ash Wednesday when the Prince of Fools has to hand the reins back to the ruling authorities.
0: Oh, my goodness. And then people have had their fun... 40 days of fasting yeah. and then we celebrate Easter. There's a part of Carnival called Women's Day, is that right? That's right, Viber
5: Fastnacht. Basically, that means women's Mardi Gras, literally. That's the feast night of women and it is tradition on Viber Fastnacht that a woman will take a scissor, walk around on the streets and any man who walks by who wears a tie can get his tie cut and in return you have to give him a kiss on the cheek. Men are prepared for that. They take out the worst ties on Viber Fastnacht onto the streets and then some bring several, if they want to, you know, get several kisses, of course. Uh, <laughs> bring nice. your knives. Know,
0: that's uh, that's all part of the fun of Carnival. And if you're not going to deal with the crowds in Cologne, but you want to celebrate Carnival, will you find this in many places in Germany?
5: All along the Rhine River, pretty much, you will mm-hmm. find Carnival. All the way even down to Basel, which, uh, in ah. Switzerland, which is, of course, interesting because it's a Protestant city, and it's one of the few big Protestant cities in Europe that has maintained the Carnival tradition. Hmm. Frankfurt would have Carnival? Uh, Frankfurt would have Carnival. Koblenz. Mainz, Mainz, Koblenz, they all would have Carnival. But Cologne is definitely the one, where, I think. But what of course, I'm a local patriot there, was,
0: so. What was your uh, favorite costume
5: that you wore in a Carnival in the past? Oh, I was pretty much everything in Carnival in the past. I was a vampire. I was a cowboy. I was an Indian. You know, cowboys and Indians you play as a Germans kid. Germans are really well. into cowboys and yes. Indians. At Carnival. <laughs> all right. absolutely,
0: Fabian Ruger, thank you so much for a little insight in how Germany parties hardy before the... Lenten season leading up to Easter. Happy Carnival. Alaaf. Do you say Happy Carnival or what do you say? Depending, it's very important
5: which greeting you use. You have to use the right Carnival greeting. In Cologne, you say Kölle Alaaf.
0: And what does that mean?
5: That means, you know, remember the time from French occupation, etc. It means Cologne above all.
0: Cologne above all. And how do I say that again? Kölle Alaaf. Kölle Alaaf. Dankeschön, Fabian Ruger. <laughs> Now let's head east and see how people celebrate Carnival in the Balkans with their own interesting flavors and traditions. Our guests are Marjan Kriskovic. He's a native of Croatia and Slovenia and lives in the Slovenian capital of Ljubljana. And Ben Curtis is a guide who specializes in the region, and he's written A Traveler's History of Croatia. Ben, Marjan, welcome. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Hey, Ben, tell us just in a big picture... What is carnival? How does it relate to Easter? Uh, and this is the same for a lot of different cultures, before we get in specific to, to Slovenia.
1: Right. Well, if you've ever read the Bible, you know that there's no Easter bunny in the Bible. So you might wonder, well, why is there this bunny associated with this Christian holiday? Well, carnival is much the same minus bunnies. Carnival, in fact, starts as pagan traditions. Literally, carnival is a bacchanalia, so it goes back to to Roman traditions, Bacchus, the god of wine and jollity. He was a party animal. And so the idea is like one last huge party before Lent, before you kind of give up some of your indulgences. And it starts even pre-Christian times as a huge party, which is also sometimes about saying goodbye to winter. It's Mm -hmm. the return of spring and the celebrations of the return of the sun. And then carnival just evolves this mixture of masquerades and social criticism, social satire. It's a time where literally, as if you've ever been to Mardi Gras or seen Mardi Gras in New Orleans, it's the time where anything goes. And so many of these European carnival traditions, anything goes. The low can rise to become the high. The powerless can criticize the powerful. And everybody celebrates together. And When you're all drunk, everyone's equal. And that's kind of one of the things that is what carnival is all about. And you've got
0: masks in a lot of cases or costumes where even the high class can get down and dirty with the low class, which is actually kind of exciting for them too, I would mm-hmm. imagine. So you've got the 40 days of fasting and denial during Lent to get prepared for Easter. And this would be the big bash before
1: all of this Lenten uh, fasting, is that right? Exactly. It's like, let's misbehave for a week before we have to really be uh, good.
0: In, in a way, did that go back in Europe to, as sort of a venting of the disgruntled lower class, the hungry people and so on, a chance for them just to go
1: wild just so they didn't have serious uh, civil disturbances? Right, yeah. It's, again, kind of the whole way that these institutions grew up to try to allow some social criticism and allow people mm-hmm. to let their steam out, I guess, Mm -hmm. and make sure that they wouldn't actually uh, rise up. Marian Krzkovic, of course,
0: carnival is famous in Venice, but just over the border in Slovenia and Croatia, it's big also. Can you talk a little bit about the distinct way that the Slovenes and the Croatians celebrate carnival?
6: Well, there are certainly two different kinds of carnival that have developed over the time. One side, there's the original pagan, rough, basic carnival, that has to do with pagan tradition, chasing away winter masks with big horns and sheepskins and bells, and it's uh, almost kind of scary, and a lot of um, traditions and rituals that have to some point even lost their meaning in time. And on the other hand, through time, especially the nearby big cultural center of Venice, the centuries developed a more genteel, upscale version of it, and uh, you will find both of these models still today represented throughout Slovenia and Croatia. So generally, the bigger cities will have carnival processions, which are much more in line with what you'll find in Venice, and smaller towns, especially remote areas and hills and in valleys, will have all that rough, old uh, pagan the old pagan yes. Now, Now, what is the carnival prince? The carnival prince, in many places in Europe, just like in Slovenia and Croatia, you will make an effigy of the carnival prince. He's called uh, Pust, Mesopust, Jurepishkanats in my town of Rob. And uh, it's usually a figure that uh, represents this whole period. And of course, at the end of this wild and crazy party, as uh, something that was sinful, it needs to go. So it needs to be burned. Um, you actually burn the prince. That's right. Uh, there Talk are about different... political venting then, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there are different variations on it. But uh, for instance, in my town, it was staged as a trial. Where the whole town would uh, show up, and there was a prosecution and a defense, Mm. and the carnival prince gets blamed for all the stuff, bad stuff, that happened in the previous years. Burn it away, start again. That's right.
0: And that would be something that a tourist could actually witness and join in the festivities, I suppose. Oh, yes, and it's
6: wonderful because it's outside of the tourist season, and you really mix only with the locals. You truly get a true experience. Beyond the big tourism. And Marjan, what are the Carnival witches? The Carnival witches are actually good witches. they a symbol of uh, luck, particularly in Sierknica, and are the, um, the representation of the Carnival celebrations there. This is Travel Trick Steve's. We're
0: talking about celebrating Carnival in Slovenia and Croatia. We're joined by our tour guide friends, Marjan Kriskovic from Slovenia, and Ben Curtis, who's a professor at the Seattle University, and he's written a book called. The Traveler's History of Croatia. Ben, when you were working on your Traveler's History of Croatia book, did you encounter any way where you could teach some, uh, you know, history of Croatia through the politics and the satire that came out in these festivities? Talk a little bit about the political underlining of these carnival celebrations
1: in former Yugoslavia. Right. So, one example I might cite is the most famous carnival in Croatia is in Rijeka, which is the city at the very northern part of the Kvarnar Gulf on the Adriatic, right on the coast. And Rijeka, the biggest, most famous carnival. And you'll see in some of these Croatian islands some traditions which will remind you of the Venetian carnival. And that's how you can, one of the ways that you can know the Venetian influence that was all over the Croatian coast for hundreds and hundreds of years. Ben, just to wrap things up,
0: what is your best tip for a traveler enjoying carnival in Croatia or Slovenia?
5: hmm
1: Go and just mix right in, you know. Jump into it. Uh, don't wait to be invited. Yeah. Um. Grab a glass of something. You can drink whatever, and uh, maybe even if you want to get a mask. And it's <laughs> you know easier with a mask. It's easier with a mask, and you don't have to spend a lot of money. You just party with everybody.
0: So you know Venice is quite complicated and and uh, mm-hmm. overwhelmed, but uh, you can go a few miles away and have a whole different carnival ambience and ease. marian Krskovic, tell us your favorite carnival memory growing up in former Yugoslavia.
6: Well, that would be, of course, from my hometown uh, And Rob. I was mentioning the burning of the Carnival Prince. Uh, well, the things that he gets blamed for uh, are usually embarrassing things that would have happened in the course of the years. Essentially, it's uh, towns gossip that gets recycled from the entire year, and that's what a little town like that thrives in its off-time winter mode. So just in case if anybody missed something, they turn up for the trial to the Carnival Prince, and um, everything gets recycled in the sense of we blame you for this and this embarrassing thing happening to that and that person. And just in case if you miss something, everything gets printed as well. Ultimately, the, his last will and testimony is read. And so the same um, kind of charade continues with uh, this and this item being uh, bestowed to this and that person so that embarrassing thing doesn't happen to them again. In uh, little communities like that, there's always a pair of eyes um, looking and observing something, even when you think there's nobody there. So it can be pretty fun. So you were personally involved in some of these rituals of forgiveness? (laughs) Of course. But uh, needless to say, leading up to this are on several weekends for um, several weeks. There are big parties and masked balls throughout town. Sometimes the towns will even finance costumes for the local people. And especially for the children, we don't have trick-or-treat for Halloween but this, the same kind of ritual happens at carnival time. Okay. And kids will go from door to door and uh, basically ask, get candies. Great memories. And then they um, have all these parties with masks and uh, dancing. So it's just a wonderful time for children and a lot of fun. memories.
0: I am so thankful that these wonderful medieval festivals, so rooted in all these different cultures around Europe, survive. And as travelers, we can enjoy them today. And they, they survive even in a modern time when the when maybe the, the reason that started them in the very beginning is no longer there. They still are embraced and it's a fun way to celebrate not only who you are, but if you're a traveler, where you're visiting. Ben Curtis and Marjan Krskovic, happy carnival. Happy, happy carnival. carnival. How do you say, Marjan happy carnival in uh, Croatian? Sretan mesopust. Happy carnival. <laughs> <laughs> Next, we check in with listeners at 877-333-7425 and by email to radio at ricksteves.com. We'll get travelers' impressions of the Holy Land from their trips to Israel and its neighbors. It's Travel with Rick Steves. One great way to connect with the locals is to speak the language, or at least some of it. Rosetta Stone is a fast, fun way to learn. It's got helpful tools like online video chats with native-speaking teachers. You can take the Rosetta Stone demo or purchase the program at a special discount at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. After traveling to Israel and the Palestinian territories to film a special that's been airing on public television lately, I've found that plenty of people want to compare notes with me about the Holy Land. We recently opened our phones at Travel with Rick Steves to record some interesting conversations with listeners on the topic. I think you'll appreciate hearing some more of their thoughts and experiences right now. Our number is 877-333-7425, and you can email us your observations to radio at ricksteves.com. Craig joins us on the line from Chicago. Hi, Craig.
3: Hey, Rick. It's great to be here. Yeah, I visited the Holy Land two summers ago. I was there for 11 days, and I saw four sites in Tel Aviv, Ein Gedi, Jerusalem, and I made a side trip to Bethlehem. What really struck me was how you could see the history of the Jewish diaspora and the people. Most American Jews or Ashkenazi that means they're from northern or eastern european descent I met, you know, Mizrahi Jews, those who family come from the middle east, Sephardic Jews, those from the mediterranean area, Ethiopian Jews. It was really interesting to see, you know, literally all the colors of the world walking through the the streets of Israel. I found that fascinating.
0: I was struck the same way and I love the way you say that you could see the Jewish diaspora written on the faces of the people that you meet. And I, I never quite wrote it down that way. And now that you say that, it is so true. And uh, I learned that more than half of the people in Israel today are first-generation immigrants who are Jews that are coming back uh, from uh, all over the world. And, yeah. uh, and they need to learn about what it's like to be a good Jewish citizen. So I found that uh, all the teenage boys and girls have to go to the army. And the army serves not only as a defense and a cheap workforce, but also a kind of a cultural boot camp where these first-generation Israelis learn to speak Hebrew, they learn the story of their country, and and they learn to respect the struggles they've had, and they learn uh, all the traditions, and they come out of there ready to contribute to the young modern nation of Israel.
3: And I get a strong sense that people from different racial backgrounds get along better there. For example, I was taking the bus, the Aged bus, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem one day, and a soldier sat down in the seat in front of me. And then a couple of minutes later, another soldier came on the bus. The first soldier was white. He was very Ashkenazi-looking. The second soldier was black. And they you know, they fist-bumped each other and started talking. Hmm. And it was sort of enjoyable to see.
0: It is quite a complicated uh, ethnic mix there, and right now I know that uh, Israel's kind of celebrating the fact that there are more Jewish Israelis in Israel today than were killed in the Holocaust. Uh, six million. And that's kind of a threshold. And today they uh, there's this very aggressive welcome home policy where Jewish people from anywhere in the world can get a You know, the welcome mat rolled out for them and a lot of help assimilating and getting set up in Israel. I noticed when I was traveling around the country, signs were in four languages. There was uh, Hebrew for the uh, uh, Israeli Jews. There was Arab for the Muslims who lived there, the Palestinians. There was English for most other people. And there was Russian also on the signs. A reminder that a lot of Israelis today are Russians who speak better Russian than Hebrew, and they're still learning to become Assimilated into Israel, right? Did you go into the West Bank at all?
3: Yeah, I took the city bus from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. There's a city bus that leads from the Damascus Gate of the old city and goes right into Bethlehem. You know, I toured the Church of the Nativity. I saw the Mosque of Omar across the square from it. I took a tour of the church with a Palestinian Christian he showed me a little bit of the Old Town, and I found that fascinating. He said it's the world's oldest freestanding church. It Hmm. dates to like 320, 330.
0: Yeah, I think it's one of three or four churches that Emperor Constantine sort of commissioned to have built after his mother came back from the Holy Land.
3: Yeah. What a fascinating sight. Oh, yeah. And
0: what's interesting uh also that Mosque of Omar is standing there on Nativity Square facing the church which is built upon the place that people believe Jesus was born and that mosque has been there for more than a thousand years honoring the place where Jesus was born and it's a reminder that in Islam I understand Jesus is the second most important prophet and Mary is such a big deal that a whole book in the Quran is named after uh, the Virgin Mary.
3: And my guide the Palestinian Christian said that Jesus' name is mentioned more in the Quran than uh, Mohammed.
0: Right, right. No,
3: you're kidding. uh, Yeah, that's true.
0: (laughs) There's a lot of uh, discoveries you can make when you travel in the Holy Land and especially when you go across the wall into Bethlehem. I'm impressed that you took the bus from Damascus Gate in Jerusalem right to Bethlehem. Did the bus, was it for tourists or were there people with special work passes that could go across or what kind of security was there at the border when the bus went across the wall?
3: No, it was a regular city bus. It went through East Jerusalem It was not stopped when it crossed the border. I learned about it from the Lonely Planet guide. Right. On the way back, it was stopped. I got out. They checked my passport, then it went on.
0: I guess that would make sense that they would check it when it's entering Israel rather than when it's leaving. All right. Craig, thank you so much for your call and your report on the Holy Land.
3: Hey, Rick, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Take care.
0: Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye. And Jan is on the phone in Henderson, Nevada. Jan, thanks for your call.
3: Oh,
7: Certainly. How are you doing?
0: Doing great, and thank you for uh, joining our discussion about the Holy Land. What's your experience in the Holy Land?
7: Well, we spent about 11 and a half weeks in the Middle East in 2010. You know, I think of the Holy Land as, as just Israel, but frankly, every place we went seemed like it was Holy Land because it had things from the Bible in it. But we had a great experience. We were in Egypt and Jordan, and then we stayed for a few days on the... Dead Sea, and then we tried crossing through the Allenby Bridge to get to Jerusalem, which we had read one guidebook that said not to do that because it was too dangerous because you go through the West Bank. Well, we didn't even know when we went through the West Bank, Yeah, (laughs) you know, because you were on a taxi, (laughs) so we didn't even know anything, but it was a long process because you had to wait in so many different lines.
0: Right. To go across Allenby Bridge, you mean? That's yes. that's the bridge that crosses the Jordan River separating the West Bank from the country of Jordan?
7: Yes, the Jordan Trickle.
0: The Jordan Trickle, yeah. That's the, <laughs> that, that's the river that flows from the Sea of Galilee, which is the number one source of water in Israel, uh, which is already below sea level, and it flows about 50 miles south going further below sea level until it reaches the Dead Sea, which I think is 1,400 feet below sea level. And it is just a little yeah. trickle, but that sort of uh, irrigates the whole lush uh, Jordan River Valley, which... Uh, I met uh, Israelis living in settlements in the Jordan River Valley that just thought, oh, this is just the greatest place to be. And you could tell that the fertile land and the history all combined together, it's it's just quite an exciting little corner of the Holy Land.
7: Yes, yes, it is. It was kind of funny because you know how Americans are with our passports. Yes. <laughs> you, know, you don't want to let go. Americans but, think that uh, if somebody
0: steals your passport, they can go home in your place.
7: Yeah, something like that. Anyway, when um, we'd given up our passport going across there and, oh, you just waited in so many different lines, and then, you know, I was wanting my passport back, so, you know, I'm asking this gentleman for passports, and he handed me a whole stack of passports. Now, ours was in it. So and he just said, sort through nice. this and
0: find it. I've had the same thing happen to me in some godforsaken border <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. And I say, where's my passport? And the guy gives me a whole bunch of them and I find it myself. And then I give him back the stack of passports. It doesn't give you a lot of confidence in the system, especially when you're going from <laughs> Jordan to the West Bank.
8: That's right.
0: Did you actually go to the Dead Sea and check that out?
7: Yes.
0: Did you go swimming?
7: The Dead Sea on the Jordan side.
0: On the Jordan we side? We didn't do it on the, okay. on the
7: Jordan
0: side. Well, it's just as salty. So
7: Yes, that's right, that's right.
0: Did you bob like a cork? It was
7: wonderful, yeah. It felt good, but it was kind of slimy.
0: It is slimy, that's what I don't like about the Dead Sea, you get out, and because of the, uh, the way it evaporates and all the minerals coming into it and so on, uh, I think like 30 or 40% minerals, it's just no wonder you're so buoyant in that thing, but that's a must-see or a must-do thing when you're in uh, the Holy Land is to check out the lowest place on Earth, 1,400 feet below sea level.
7: And I put the mud on, but I didn't come out beautiful.
0: Oh, come on. The mud makes you forever young. You see people caked in this jet black mud. All you see is a big smile on their face. When I went there with my Palestinian guide, we went took a dip in the Dead Sea, and then he made a point to fill up a baggie full of the medicinal mud, and he took it back to his wife, and he said, she's going to be very, very happy. Uh, the people that really love that mud from the Dead Sea, and they can smear it all over their bodies, and maybe they'll uh, have younger skin. All right, Jan. Hey, thanks, thanks for your call, and happy travels in the future. Okay, bye now. We're checking in with listeners on the topic of travel to the Holy Land. You can hear more callers on this topic that we included in an episode of Travel with Rick Steves a few weeks back. Look for program number 388 in our program archives from December 2014. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Natalie in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, writes in for advice to help her plan an upcoming trip to Israel. Natalie writes... In 2011, my husband and I traveled to Israel with another well-traveled couple. I used a tour company in Israel to plan our itinerary daily, but we also built in lots of free days to explore on our own. We're going back in a few weeks. This time, I feel a bit anxious about safety, and I know the media always blows things out of proportion. I'd like to hear about how you found travel in this part of the world on your recent trip. Well thanks Natalie and I understand it is a little bit nerve-wracking to be looking at the the media and then thinking oh I'm going to be going there myself shortly. I agree the media does blow things out of proportion but there is tension in the Middle East. I remind myself that you know life is uh precious and I want to live it experientially. I want to understand things with a first-hand experience. Personally I would go to Israel now. I'd love to go to Israel now and I'd go to the West Bank. There'll be um tragedies in the news. I would stay away from Gaza personally uh I would stay away from places that are having any kind of disruptions and that sort of thing. But we got to remember, all in all, the West Bank and Israel are peaceful now. I felt a, a very calming presence of security guards, both Palestinian security guards in Palestine and Israeli security guards all over Israel. I would go to Israel. I'd go to Israel tomorrow, and I wouldn't worry about it. I think it's a powerful act for peace to go there and talk to people and learn the context and, and the baggage and the, and the narratives of both communities. Natalie, you'll read in the paper about tragic events, people driving into each other, people killing each other as they worship. We've got to remember these are crimes, and crimes happen all over the world. Statistically, there's no more crimes in Israel than there are in the United States. They just are sectarian crimes, and they make a lot of headlines. But statistically, if you're comfortable traveling to Miami or Chicago or New York, I would think it's no more dangerous to go to the great cultural centers of Israel and Palestine. Carol's on the line in Silver Spring, Maryland.
8: Hi, Rick. I always love talking about the Holy Land. It's one of my greatest delights. I've been three times with a Christian peace group in 2007, 2009, and then this year. Uh-huh. And I love going on both sides, Israel and Palestine, or West Bank. One of my delights is meeting people. And thanks to this peace group... I was able to spend the night in Palestinian homes. Oh nice. Three times in the Bethlehem area and the Middle Eastern hospitality which is so legendary is actually real. You go to their homes they would give you the shirt off their back. They're constantly putting food in front of you. And I found that I was with a family each time. They love their children so tenderly these Palestinians do. And if you want to win their hearts, you can talk about the children in your life, whether it's your children or neighborhood children or whatever. And that's a common ground. It's something that's universal. Many of them speak English. Education is so important to Palestinian families.
0: Carol, Um, you went to West Bank on a Christian tour, right? Yes. What's your take on the Christian take on the Muslim-Jewish problem?
8: I think that... It's a shame that these young people don't see each other. For example, Palestinian children never meet any Israelis except soldiers. Mm -hmm. So when they hear the word Israeli, they think of somebody with a gun. Yes. That's just so pathetic.
0: You know, a lot of people told me they think that the Palestinians are raising their kids to hate Israelis. And then I asked my Palestinian friends about that and they said, it's our challenge to raise our kids not to hate Israelis because all they see is Israeli soldiers keeping them down.
8: Yeah, it is a challenge. And it's a challenge on the Israeli side. Of
0: course, Um, there's been so much suffering on both sides of that wall and My feeling is when you are not able to talk to the other generation on the other side of the wall, you're saddled with your parents' baggage instead of getting to know the other narrative. I saw little kids with toy guns in the refugee camps in Palestine, you know, shooting imaginary Jews, and I thought, that's terrible. Mm -hmm. And then I went into the settlements, and I saw little kids with toy guns, you know, in their Jewish settlements shooting imaginary Palestinians, and I thought, that's terrible. And then I thought, when I was a little kid, I had a toy gun my parents gave me, and I was shooting Indians or, or communists or Germans or Japanese, you know. And it's just, we have our parents' baggage. And if we can't talk to each other, we're going to go through life with our parents' baggage.
8: That's absolutely right. I was very pleased to read recently that a committee of Palestinian and Israeli educators have recently worked jointly to produce what they call a dual narrative textbook mm-hmm. that can be used in all the schools It gives the Israeli story of the sufferings of the Jews, how they came to this area of the world after having been there in biblical times, Mm -hmm. and then the story of the Palestinians, how they too have been here for thousands of years and what they have suffered.
0: And they have a history of coexistence more than a history of fighting each other, which is very interesting. Not that there aren't serious challenges and problems, but they've lived together and they could live together in the future. It's so constructive to get that both narratives, to to understand why the Israelis insist on holding the high ground and uh, yes. try to understand what that wall means mm-hmm. to the Palestinians.
8: That's right. My group visited a place called the Tent of Nations, which is southwest of Bethlehem. It's a hundred-acre farm that's owned by a Lutheran Palestinian family. They've owned this land since 1916. Hmm. It's a hilltop. Their farm is on a hilltop, and this is the land... That is coveted most by settlers. They want hilltops. Mm -hmm. And so they've suffered a bit of harassment. But what they've done is to open up a youth camp where young people can get together and talk about peacemaking and appreciating different cultures. Anybody is welcome to visit. It's Mm -hmm. tentofnations.org. They have a big stone out by the, the gate to the property that says, we refuse to be enemies, which I thought was so beautiful.
0: That's courageous. That's the key to peace. I think Palestine and Israel can learn from Ireland. I I think Ireland had a terrible sectarian problem for generations, and it seems to me they decided, we're not going to let an isolated crime, an atrocity drive us into our corners again we're going to stay together, we're going to survive the bumps in the road but we're going to insist on moving towards peace instead of letting one criminal act uh, rekindle the war and today, Ireland is living in peace and, and that would be something that might be able to inspire the Israelis and the Palestinians I would hope
8: I would hope so, too.
0: You went to Hebron, which is a very important place for both Israelis, or for Jews and Muslims, because it's the tomb of Abraham, the the common patriarch, the the granddaddy of everybody there. What was your experience (laughs) like in Hebron?
8: Well, it's interesting because the tomb of Abraham is divided into two sections. The Jews have one door that they go in, and there's a library where they can study, and they can look in on the tomb from one side... And then the Muslims go in from the other side, there's a a mosque, Mm -hmm. and they, they look in. And Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, and Leah are all buried there. So there are several tombs you can visit.
0: And these go back to 1900 B.C. or something like that. I mean, this That's is right. very, That's very right. old, very sacred. And, and as you said, it's split. It's got that bulletproof pane of glass that, that goes right down the middle of the tomb so the Jewish people can worship in their synagogue on one half and the Muslims can worship in their mosque on the other.
8: Yes, yes. Poignant
0: That's... experience. And we travelers can walk right into to both sides.
8: That's right. right. Did
0: you feel like it was easy to get into both uh, the synagogue and the mosque?
8: I did, and I felt welcome in each side.
0: All right. Carol, thanks so much for your call.
8: Well, thank you.
0: Okay, bye now. Bye. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. Special thanks this week to Brooke Burdick and Aaron Harding. We can email you when we're recording our next interview so that you can talk with Rick and his guests. Look in the radio section of ricksteves.com where it says sign up for radio news. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone believes that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture. Now available as a smartphone and tablet app. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. And his country, city and snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat and where to sleep
1: for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.